0: On this episode of The Playbook, I have the incredible offensive guard for the Arizona Cardinals, Justin Pugh. And we're going to talk about all the things that you shouldn't talk about in public as public figures and how I stole a jacket from him at the Super Bowl. Join me for all of this and more on The Playbook. This is The Playbook where I give you access each week to the world's greatest athletes and executives about their personal and professional playbook and what has made them champions on and off the field. This is the playbook. I have an incredible friend. He doesn't know he's a friend of mine because I've been around him so many different times, kind of waving and saying hi. A lot of times it's dark when he sees me, but Justin Pugh, uh, incredible guard for the Arizona Cardinals, incredible person. And we've had several different friends in several different places. But, Justin, welcome to The Playbook.
1: Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was, it, it, you're going to have to explain, explain it all to me. But uh, I know we definitely have crossed paths a few times. But uh, <laughs> there may be a few
0: times that I'm I'm forgetting about. So I uh, yeah, well, appreciate you having me on the show. I know you do a lot, of, a lot of great things. Thank you. My favorite is my executive producer, the head of my media. You may or may not know. His name is Justin Pugh. Uh, and we've been next to you, Warren. You know, Warren's Moon is my partner, so we've been met next to you some nights. And he hears, like, one of your buddies hears that my buddy's Justin Pugh, and he's like, "Wait a second, how'd you get his ID?" You know, they're all they're all freaking out on my friend. But I do owe you an apology before we get started. The favorite Nike gift I've ever gotten at the Super Bowl is these custom-made raincoats at the Atlanta Super Bowl, and. I, you know, blessed now to be an influencer. Right. So I get the the special wristband to go get the special stuff from Nike. I always used to have to glom on to Warren. He would get me the free stuff for me. Anyway, Justin is there and he didn't realize they gave him the, the he thought everyone got the special band. So they made him a, a raincoat. And then by the time he was finished, he realized they must have thought that, he was you. So you ended up with a, like a tiny raincoat at Atlanta because we screwed up and he took your name. So hopefully you got to make your own. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. I've been with Mikey for a few years. So they've sent me a few
0: jackets throughout the years. So. I've fi- I figured as much now, you know, it's worked out well. Exactly. Now, mindset is so important to both of us. And one of the reasons I want to have on the playbook is that you've been, you know, very honest about how you've had to shift your mindset. Uh, Your friends at the Handle Group, my friends at the Handle Group, uh, you know, are extraordinary coaches. Uh, And for me, the difference of a coach and a mentor is a coach brings the best out of us. A mentor tells you the best of themselves and hopefully you can follow them as an example. Um, You've been around coaches since you've been a little boy. Uh, people who are bringing the best out of you. How have you compared the on-the-field coaches to the off-the-field coaches to the significance of your performance and success?
1: I mean, I think they're as important, if not more important, because you can't even get to the football side of things if you can't get yourself together. Um, and that's the one thing that was huge with the handout group. They, they talk about how you have your your life as a highway, and there's you know all sorts of different lanes. You have this, you know go down the list you have your social you have your you know financial relationships you have your family the list goes on and on until you get those things in check you can't be a great football player you can't be a great entrepreneur you can't really achieve what you what you want and that is something that has been huge for me to 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 meet with the handout group and realize i needed some help off the field to get all my all my you know Ducks in a row and, and really get myself together. And that's been huge. It's, it's totally different than a coach. Not, not totally different, but it's just a coaching in a different area that most people don't think they need coaching in. And a lot of us do.
0: You know, it's interesting. What was your biggest challenge mentally that you didn't anticipate as you became, you know, an NFL star and all the pressures outside of the locker room? What were the, you know, things that were most surprising to you that you had to work on?
1: Ooh, I I really think it's just handling what comes with playing in a, in a market like New York city. I I don't think I was prepared for that. Um, you get drafted first overall. I didn't think I was going to be drafted first overall. Um, not first overall. I'm sorry. First round. First First overall would have been great. It would have been really, I was was searching my mind. I'm like,
0: yeah, okay.
1: (laughs) No, in in the first round. And when you're a first round pick for the New York giants, there's a certain level of expectation. The fan base is unbelievable. Die hard. And, uh, they expect a lot and there's a lot of pressure when you're in a, in a, in a city like that compared to even Arizona in Arizona, we have like 10, 10, 15 beat writers, reporters in their daily in New York. We had probably 60 to 75. Obviously when Odell was going off, we had up close to a hundred in there. Um, so I think the, the pressure, you're not just playing football for the, for the love of it anymore, for the fun. It's a business and people's jobs rely on it. Um, and as you get more aware of that, it, it puts a lot of pressure on you. And I think as a, as a young 20-something-year-old person coming into the NFL, whether it's me or any any young man coming in currently, that's a lot to put on, on someone's plate. So some guys are equipped to handle it and have the infrastructure, and some guys don't necessarily have that. And, and a, a group like Handel – can come in and and really help the mental side of things to get you prepared for that.
0: You know, in using that currency of mindset and faith combines or blends with a currency that you and I speak to very well, the currency of money, that objective energy that we put into the flow to get what we want. And your relationship with money has changed over the years as well. And you're quite the entrepreneur, uh, obviously being able to not only maintain, but grow your wealth from playing on the field to working off the field as well, what is your relationship with money and how has it developed over the years from when you were thrown into the grass of New York City high life to today uh, as a great entrepreneur?
1: Yeah, I think it, it started out with, with the first check that we that we get. You know, as a 21-year-old, I was given a check for, for $5 million, you know, or 22, whatever I was, 22 and 23 at the time. Um, but young, I'm in New York city and I can have whatever I want. I can do whatever I want. You know, I, I never tell guys just, they have to put it all away right now. You've worked hard. A lot of, a lot of guys in the NFL come from nothing. So I always say like you're allowed to spoil yourself a little bit. You're allowed to get that car. You always want, we're going to, we're going to stop at one car. We're not going to go to two or three. Um, we're going to rent an apartment. We're not going to buy mama house just yet. That's second contract. maybe we rent her an apartment somewhere outside of wherever she's at. Um, it really, it really became real to me, and I had to kind of check myself. That first year, I definitely spent way too much money. I didn't have my budget tight. I didn't really know what I was spending, and that was something that was huge for me to really get in check. I guess even to back forward even more, to back pedal even more. The first real relationship that I had was taxes. That first check I got, and almost half of my money was gone. Um, that was something that was just wild to me. I thought I was robbed. I thought the giants didn't pay me the right amount. Um, and, and that was really my first real moment with money where I didn't realize, you know, and my financial advisor, who's my uncle, um, he said to me, he said, uh, it's a good problem to have. You pay a lot in taxes. That means you're making a lot. So he's like a lot of people, you know, aren't as fortunate. So you have to look at it from that lens. I know a lot of people in taxes, uh, it's always a, a daily battle. Um, so that really was my first, my first taste of what it was like to make that kind of money. Um, and then going forward, it's all about preserving that. So I was able to save all of my signing bonus from my rookie year and then and my salary and, and most of it, I did spend probably a little more than I wanted to. And then that brought in the whole budgeting aspect of things.
0: You know, through that, too, I think looking at mindset, we move to mental health in general. And you've been a real person that has prioritized mental health. Uh, you know, there's a lot of different things that can happen uh, from all professional athletes. You know, I've been blessed to be around so many from running Lee Steinberg to sports while marketing with Warren Moon. And I see uh, someone, you know, that mental health is a real concern. Uh, and it could be physical. From just getting hit too many times, I've seen many of my friends commit suicide uh, and clients, uh, and people have just ignored what I saw as complete signs that are CTE, uh, to just general pressure, uh, things that I had faced when you know I was a multimillionaire in my 20s that caused real mental strain and stress and doubts and imposter syndrome and all of those things. You know, what do you do to prioritize mental health, not just for you, but in football in general?
1: Yeah, I think mental health has become such a, a taboo issue in our sport where no one wants to talk about it. No one wants to talk about concussions. No one wants to talk about CTE. Um, I think we've come a long way than, than, when you know, even 20, 30 years ago uh, when guys were playing. It's now a lot more common for a guy to sit out with a concussion whereas before, if you got your bell wrong, and say, hey, whatever you have to do to get back out on the field. Um, I think as, as players ourselves, we've take, done a better job of, of making sure we're taking care of our bodies off the field. Uh, The nutrition, the sleep, the weight room, uh, those things have been more prioritized just in our general culture. So it's kind of rubbed off on the NFL. It's not like we were leading the charge in this, Um, but as a culture, I feel like we're healthier now than we've ever been. Um, And we're going to continue to go down that path. Everyone's the organic and the, you know, eating right and the working out and, You see like during quarantine, everyone's getting on these bikes and doing the cycling, um, which is great. And I think that translates even more over into the NFL community. Um, We have to keep understanding that we have to take care of the physical side of things because the physical side of things plays a huge role in the mental side of things. If you're not taking care of your body and waking up with a purpose, with something to do, it starts to affect your mental. And I think all of us can kind of see if you don't work out for a few days or you don't get some kind of physical activity, you feel it. And I think for NFL guys, it's even tenfold because we obviously have had issues with with concussions. The CTE is—I w- I don't want to say fully preventable because it's it's not—and what we do. But when you have a concussion, you have an injury to the brain. If you sit out the right amount of time and you protect yourself, you can fully heal. Pe- fully heal. People get into car accidents, have have concussions all the time. Fall off their bikes, bump their heads. Um, if you just don't go back into that type of physical activity you can you can actually help yourself and there's things off the field you can do um there's like a lot of, a lot of studies coming out now about hyperbaric chambers and, and using those um and, and and a lot of other things off the field that you can do to take care of your body and that's where i've really taken a big step this past year with the massage and stretching um i'm trying to get a hyperbaric chamber they're a little expensive so i'm trying to figure out an avenue to to buy one and maybe be able to, to do it as a business.
0: Call, um, call call Uncle Dave, I got some connections for you. We'll, we'll work an endorsement deal. We'll work that for you. <laughs> 100%. We'll
1: talk after the show, but it's been a miracle thing that I found and it's been huge. Um and th- and that's really it played a huge role in it for me. It, it's taking care of the health, the physical and it, it helps the mental. You have to do some meditation. I started doing this there's this guy, this crazy guy from the Netherlands or Holland, uh, Wim Hof. I don't know. Yeah, he's been him.
0: on the podcast. Yeah, we love Wim Hof.
1: Yeah, he's unbelievable. I started doing it this year. I wanna go out and like I, I know Steve Weatherford who I played with in uh I played with in New York. He went out and actually stayed with him. I think it would be amazing. During this season, I was getting into the cold, so up to my neck. Um and I was doing the Wim Hof breathing and everyone thought I was out of my mind. Guys would come into the, to the, to the cold tub and they're like, dude, what are you doing? And I was just became this, like, they call, started calling me Pew hop because I was you know, <laughs> doing it so much. That's um, so good. The, the breathing has been an unbelievable thing for me. Just, I think in any, in any culture and any wellness, they always prioritize breathing. I think Wim is something that checked that for me and got me down that road, but just kind of sitting back and breathing helps reset the body.
0: Yeah, I'm, uh, I'll be with Steve on Friday and we're planning a trip out there. Uh, so you'll have to get the information and join us. Uh, we're going back out to the Hofster, So that'll be awesome. Uh, you'll, you'll really enjoy it. Now, one of the other things about uh, uh, playing and I've learned this from my own brand is you have to get a comfort level to speak out, you know, and you know, you, you kind of test the ground, you know, for you, how has that progressed or evolved to have the confidence to speak out about mental health or even the kneeling or, or other issues that, you know, come up in the NFL, where and when did you become comfortable speaking out and giving your opinion and how did you deal with the repercussions or haters or the ownership or the coaches in, in the comments that they may have given you afterwards?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, it must be, I'm I'm from Philadelphia. I'm from like the suburbs of Philadelphia. So it must just be the Philly in me that I'm giving you my opinion, whether you, you want to hear it or not. Um, And you can look throughout the course of my career. I've always been a person to speak up when I was in New York. They always were coming to me for, for a quote on something. Sometimes I I needed to learn to shut up and uh, I'm trying to get better with that with age, but sometimes if I feel like something needs to be said, I'm going to say it. Um, whether I've said things that are wrong. I've said things about, you know, when I was in New York, I said, I'll, you know, I was one of the first NFL players to come out and, and be opposed to what Kaepernick was doing with the kneeling. Um, and then after talking to my teammates and realizing what they go through, that I have no idea as a, as a white man growing up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, I never encountered any of these things. Um, and having conversations with men that come from different backgrounds, race, religion, across the board has really opened my eyes and I think made me a better, a better person. Um, it's okay for someone to say, I don't know, or I was misinformed. It's, it's, it's fine to have, everyone's going to have their own prejudices in some capacity. I just think if you're able to learn from them admit you were wrong and grow from it, that's where we all need to go. Our country does a lot of, I, I'm never wrong. I'm always right. No one ever wants to admit they don't know something. Um, and that hurts us. That kind of keeps us stagnant and where we're and where our mindset is. So i try to do a good job of, you know, if I believe I'm right, I'm trying to, I, prove me wrong otherwise but it, I, I don't have a problem admitting that i messed up or i had the wrong statement all right you know and was man enough to apologize and, and have the tough conversations and the more tough conversations we have especially as white men like me and you have having this conversation right now we can start to shine a light because a lot of p- people that come from where we i don't know you know your, your upbringing exactly but like i grew up with my minority majority white people around me and if we can kind of be a voice, I think that really helps champion a lot of these guys that don't come from great areas or, or, or have dealt with adversity throughout their lives. And it's something that I feel like I need to be a part of. If I sit back on the sidelines. I'm doing more of a disservice than anything.
0: Yeah, it's been incredible in my career because I grew up in Akron, Ohio, very close to where LeBron James did. So I was the minority. Uh, which actually was a detriment as I moved through, uh, you know, going to schools that were predominantly more academic, uh, weren't very uh, diverse in their nature. And yet my vernacular and my vocabulary and my culture was very much the opposite. And some of the things that were culturally OK, because I grew up in those neighborhoods, I was persecuted for, you know, the words that I would use, the music I listened to. Uh, they thought I was actually racist. And I had to go through a transformation as I played football in college, you know, to a predominantly white school, you know, a small, smaller liberal arts school, one that would actually let someone like me play. You know, I, had to, I had to actually learn, oh, this works both ways. Um, and you know, it's, it's really interesting because I uh, have gotten myself in trouble. I, I said, you know, all lives should matter, for example. And I believe in being a hypocrite and in learning to admit that you're wrong. I needed to say, Hey, we need to prioritize black lives, black lives matter. And this is a priority. And my friends, you know, my business partner is Warren moon. So you can imagine the the history I've had with Lee Steinberg and what we've been able to do for equity uh, and equality, which are two different things. So uh, I appreciate the fact that you do speak out and I think more people should speak their opinion and be open to learn, Hey, my opinion sucks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. exactly. If you're hiding those opinions, we're not going to learn from each other and get that perspective. You know, even with Kaepernick, I used to say, "Hey." I respect what he did, but I I wish he would have picked a more positive way to go about it, that we wouldn't have to have some sort of division over whether you're harming Americans, you know, like there's something against America by kneeling when they were playing the anthem. I wish we could have worked with him beforehand and said, hey, let's pick something that wouldn't be as, uh, you know, not controversial, but something conflictual in its message that you could have picked to, to, to do something. I think it would have, you know, still had the power that it did, or maybe it won't. And and some of my friends were like, sorry, bro, you're wrong. You know, he had to pick that. It had to be something controversial or really separating in order to have the power that it had. So I'm with you on that last thing, real quick, you have a, a great reputation for giving back. Um, you have a big personality. I can see you definitely as a media personality when everything's said and done. You, you know, you just have this great charisma about you. But usually people that have that charisma also have a big heart. Uh, that's why they can emotionally connect to you. Um, and you've done a lot of great things for charity, including showing up on who you wants to be a millionaire. Um, what are some of the charitable things that you're involved with today uh, that mean a lot to you?
1: Yeah, so so right now, obviously, COVID has has made things tough, um, but so I, I haven't been able to do my camp for kids this past year, and this year is another one where it's it's tough because we do a camp for kids in my hometown, and you know the football camp, and then I talk to the kids at the end, kind of talking how you know how to set goals and how to write them down, look at them every day, uh, and then in Arizona we do a, a toy drive around Christmas where I bring all the kids to the movie theater and. We we have Santa Claus come in and give out presents. Um, and this year it, it, it looked a whole lot different. We did a turkey drive with the O line this year. We raised twenty thousand dollars for uh, St. Mary's Food Bank in Phoenix, Arizona. Um, just a lot of a lot of good things. I think not just me in general. I think O linemen in general are like such a like a I don't know if the right words like a cult, but we're like a fraternity. We're like a group of guys that like no one else, like we're kind of like the the forgotten guys on the O-line or on the team. If things are going great, you don't hear from us. If things are going bad, it's always the O-line's fault. So we have like this fraternity where we like to help out each other and, and help out in our community. I think there's a lot of guys on the O-line um, that, do a, that do a great job throughout the league. And it's always around those holiday times where times are tough. And, and in the cities that we're in, we try to give back. Um, my mom was a school teacher. So as soon as I was – playing football at Syracuse I would go back and talk to her students and talk to the fifth and sixth graders I love talking to young people and just letting them know what the trials and tribulations I've been through and what to learn from um so I'm always going to continue to get back in some capacity um I know it's something that is always you know near and dear to my heart so I'm looking forward to to the next thing what how else we can help more in, in the future
0: Well, I'm there with you, my friend, even though we're stealing your raincoats and other things. And just so you know, Syracuse, two of the biggest players ever at Syracuse, Danny Shays and you both live in in Arizona contact, at least. So you got the seven footer out there. You got to check him out. You are a great entrepreneur, a great philanthropist, of course, an outstanding first round draft pick both not only uh, for the NFL, but for the playbook here and a great offensive guard for the Arizona Cardinals. Thank you so much, Justin Pugh, for joining me, David Meltzer on entrepreneurs, the playbook.